Hey, how's it going? <laughs> it's, so I'm thinking about the last time we had an episode, what we were recording, mid-October, mm-hmm. maybe? It's been a, it's been a, <laughs> an eventful couple of weeks, one might say. Ongoing. Ongoing events. We are now, what day is it? The 11th? Mm-hmm. November 11th. We took an election break because, can you blame us? Um, there was a lot going on. So now we're doing things differently. And in the spirit of doing things differently, like um, voting for a new president, um, uh, we're also going to do a different kind of episode. Do you want to talk about what we're going to do? Yeah, so I think we're going to try to have a bit of a conversation about some of the the political institutions that the last couple of weeks have raised, uh, in part because I think we were both interested in learning a bit more about them, but also sort of figuring out, you know, where we stood when it comes to things like the Electoral College or the Mm -hmm. Supreme Court, which everyone, it seems like, has feelings about, but maybe... I bet you can guess where we stand, but we're still going to talk about it. Yeah. To at least explore our opinions and make sure they're well-founded. I think that's a valid exercise of our rights as Americans. Yeah, I think so. Uh, <laughs> or something like that. Should we talk about the election at I all? I feel like we should. Where were you, Katie, okay. when you Wait. found out that they had called it I was Joe in Biden? the state. Well, uh, let me tell you what a game changer a Pacific time zone is. Because you can fill your day... And not look at the news. And by the time you're looking at the news, some news has happened. Mm -hmm. Very fair. Which is refreshing. However, I feel like everyone is in the state of uh, Pacific time zone in that nobody knew on Tuesday. Nor should we, because you have to, you know. Yeah. So um, I I was very judicious about my intake of information, as I think we all should be. And... Um, I watched about maybe 10 minutes Tuesday night of verbal visual television Mm -hmm. on PBS talking about the results. And like, I'm sure many people felt it was way too tense on PBS. It was too tense for me because they didn't know, nor should they have known. And it was just a lot of conjecture and a lot of unknowns. And I, that didn't sit well with me. So I was like, I'm going to just read from now on. And if I need to check out anything visually or or listen to anything, I will do that. But in the meantime, I'm just going to read. Yeah. So from Wednesday through Saturday, I only read articles on uh, New York Times, NPR, PBS. And even then, it was just the graphs. It was just numbers. And then maybe, maybe a projection or two. But I, find those, I found those extremely stressful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... That's where I sat with it. And it served me well in terms of like keeping me calm down. Because the second you, what is it, doom scroll? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It can very quickly just tank your day. And that doesn't serve anybody very well. So um, it was surprising to me the relief I felt on Saturday. I, I shouldn't be surprised. But there was a noticeable change in my heart and my neck and my shoulders tampered or um what's the word uh tempered tempered 
tempered by the fact that it was not an overwhelming victory. It was not a sweep. And I am very angry at polls. Uh, polls the structure, not the demographic of people from Poland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just good to be clarification. Clear. Like the, the, the political polling beforehand, similar to 2016, I'm burned by the polls of like 10 points up all across the country. It's going to be a clean sweep. I hate, I officially do, um, say what you will about how like most of the time they're accurate. I, they don't serve me anymore except to make me doubt what's true. Yeah, it's just, it, well, clearly there's some there's some restructuring that needs to happen of, like, who they're calling, the questions they're asking. Are they only calling people? Are they going to people and being like, what's your deal? Who do you want to vote for? Or maybe we just, like, do away with it because it's not good enough data for me. Yeah, for sure. And just, like, if it's the amount of stress it produces versus the amount of information to, like, the general public it seems to provide does not feel yeah. equitable. Yeah. What about you? What's your hot take from the week? I think I similarly attempted to stay further away from the news last week than I would otherwise and was by and large successful. I definitely stumbled onto Twitter once or twice and it was a hellscape and like very quickly. I never went to Twitter. We never go to Twitter. That's the right choice. I occasionally spend some time on Twitter because there's other parts of Twitter, the like not politics part of Twitter that I really like. Last week was not the week to visit. Uh, But then I was supposed to like help a friend pack her apartment because she's moving on Saturday. So it was like just about to head out of the house when they called it for Biden. And within minutes, you could hear people like driving down the street, honking their horn. There was yelling. There was like much festivities happening. And in the course of the like 20 minutes it took for me to bike from my apartment to where I was meeting my friend the like whole city it seemed like had come out to celebrate. And so we decided very quickly we were not going to pack her apartment and instead got a bottle of champagne and sat in a park and listened to like a brass band play and watched people. And it was such a good day. And similarly, like I didn't realize like how much physical weight I was carrying until that afternoon when it all just sort of like lightened a little bit. Yeah, just a little. I'm not saying I'm like... We've not fixed 2008 it for sure. Hope and change, you know. Yeah, it's it's a it's different, but it did feel different. It felt like a really annoying balloon started to have the leak come out of mm-hmm. it. All of a sudden, the political party on my screen, or the I, you know, I'm sure it's how people felt in 2016. If you were on the flip of it, which I think is helpful in terms of like how we treat each other. Of, like, we're finally seen, we're finally heard. Look at our joyous, triumphant moment. I don't know. I was relieved that a group of people on my TV, watching when I was watching the news, were not screaming in rage and anger at each other. In the majority, you know? And those people exist. They were protesting as well. They are allowed to do and they were making their voices heard how they should but i appreciated that there was split time if not more time given to joyful happy people rather than angry misinformed people and for once for once i feel like in four years and he's already like put a tape on the leak of the balloon for once that day 
It didn't really matter what Trump said. He was not the focus of the day. That was which a really nice feeling. His least favorite thing to be, and has been the goal of his presidency to never not be the focus, and his primary, and like from the time he started running. So to have that change for even one day was fantastic. And you can tell how long it lasted because we're already still back on the Trump train of talking about him. But there is some shared space all of a sudden. And I just hope that that shared space in the Democratic area is not dominated by what Trump is doing. Mm-hmm. Or not doing or not helping and being stupid. It's like it's not news anymore to me that he is intransigent, ignorant, rude, inhospitable, not producing a peaceful transition for power. Who could have predicted that he wouldn't want to participate in a peaceful transition of power? Except everyone. Six months ago, when he said he wouldn't. Mm-hmm. So why are we talking about it like it's news? Yeah, and it's, it's interesting trying to hold, like, that that whole spectrum of thoughts and then also recognize that, like, the very real reality that the federal government is actively trying to make the transition more difficult and, like, holding that thought with the, we also probably don't need to be hysterical about it. Like, we should keep an eye on it because it has the potential to be not good. I'm shocked that this mismanaged from the start group in the West Wing are also going to just crap on the doormat as they leave. I'm shocked by that and not at all. Like them start, like, do you remember all of the chaos when they started of nobody knew what badges, who needed what? And like, they were not ready. They were not prepared. They do not have a structure. They're not organized. I think that is very clear. I think that is very clear from the wonderful press conference that occurred on Saturday that they do not understand what they're doing on a micro level, on a detailed level. So I don't know if I necessarily need them to prep the West Wing for a Joe Biden administration because you know who knows where the bathrooms are? Joe freaking Biden. He's like, it's sort of a weird blessing of like, you can have an utter chaotic administration, leave it in absolute disarray. And Joe Biden, I think, maybe this is giving him too much credit. Maybe he'll hire the wrong people. But there's a little bit of, like, experience is helpful right now because you're, you know, the kindergarten class is leaving. So at least get an eighth grader in there that knows, you know, at least we put the desks here and this is where Marley goes to get his thing and Suzette is over there with the food and, like, they (laughs) understand the basics of the area to kind of overcome that stupid hurdle that exists Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's a very productive metaphor there yeah or it's just like yeah okay we didn't need you to but it would have been nice it would have been courteous since that's what was shown to you but have you ever shown to do the decent or upstanding thing i don't think i need to check my notes to say never no You've always been the victim. You've always been treated terribly. So you will treat others terribly because that's a productive use of your time. Anyway, have we talked enough about this? I think we have. Do we want to instead jump into a conversation about the huge structural problems with our democracy? Is that a later topic? I mean, yes, but in a positive way of that, America is in pencil. It's not in ink. So... I'm Michael. And I'm Katie. Welcome to Missing History, a podcast where each episode we discover the people absent from history class. Spoilers, they're usually female identifying. 
We uncover their stories, investigate their impact, and discuss how they've been ignored or sidelined. Today's episode contains strong language. So where should we start? The 12th Amendment? I think maybe let's start with just like the the most basic overview. Because at least for me, yeah. I always find it really helpful to review how the system works. Great. And we're just going to tandem this. So whatever I don't say, you can say. Whatever you don't say, I'll try and pop Sounds it. great. So uh, Electoral College was set up with the 12th Amendment to the Constitution. Uh, it should be noted that in the first draft of this, uh, I think they called it the Virginia agreement or the Virginia version of the court. Mm-hmm. I was think the that Virginia, yeah, the Virginia plan. The Virginia plan was that each elector would vote two twice or put in two votes. Yes. Two ballots. The other caveat of it is that whoever got the most was the president and whoever got the second most was the vice president, regardless of party. Because mm-hmm. party wasn't really a thing when they were writing the constitution, or at least they Yeah, they were still all a bunch of different factions. It was more like state to state and like you're a Virginian and I'm a New Hampshireian or Yeah. What do you call somebody from New Hampshire? I actually don't know. And I remember one of the other rules being you ha- at least one of your votes had to be someone from a different state. Also true. So that's why in the first, well, everyone agreed that Washington was it for the first president. Um, But that's why you have with Adams, the second president, he has Jefferson as his vice president, even though they were very much different uh, political affiliations at that time. Um, Adams being very pro-central government, uh, Jefferson being very... Oh, can the states do everything for themselves, please? What do you call that? Uh, Adams would be like a federalist. States. Jefferson, I think, yes, was federalist. like a Democratic Republican. But like, yeah, yeah. in the yeah, yeah, like yeah. states' rights, even though that definitely federalist versus yeah, and you see that a lot with the 18th century of or earliest points of our democracy is just the the great divide of the need of a national government versus a state, an assembly of states. Of a confederation of states versus a federation. So the Virginia plan goes through, and then the election of 1800 kind of makes a shift into, you sort of have this team ticket of a president and a vice president. And you no longer have to subscribe to the fact that whoever gets the most is the president, whoever gets the second is the vice. And you start to get a ticket, as it were. And that's also coincidentally around the time of the whole Aaron Burr fiasco and Jefferson hating his vice president and it not being a very productive collaboration. And anyway, so Electoral College gets judged, as it were. (laughs) The technical term. Mm -hmm. In the 1800s. Um, So I did an experiment where I was like, I know how I feel about the Electoral College. Let me try and look at an opinion that is not my own and see if it rings true for me on any point in particular. Mm -hmm. It did not serve me well. Okay. <laughs> so I will I will read. These are the reasons to keep the Electoral College that I found. In very simple terms, there is way more discussion to be had from, like, constitutional professors. But I think anyone that's listening to me this much. You tell me what you think about these. Okay. Go for it. Reasons to keep. Founding fathers thought it was the best way to choose the president. Stupid reason. Also wrong. Stupid reason. Stupid reason. The U.S. Constitution should be amended only rarely. So changing a, an amendment of this nature is just, it, it can't be flippantly done, right? 
You should see my face. I'm just wearing <laughs> um, It safeguards against uninformed or uneducated voters. <laughs> uh, Absolutely no. not. Absolutely not. It does not. Absolutely not. It prevents states with larger populations from having undue influence. Thoughts? What does what does he mean by undue influence? And if more there you people go. live there, there should they not have more of a say? Uh, I guess it just you know should city dwellers tell farmers how to deal with their land if they don't live it and work it is an example of counter proposal though should farmers mm-hmm. tell city dwellers what to do with their policies if they don't live in cities? Well said. Well freaking said. Okay, it forces presidential candidates to campaign in all parts of the country. When have I ever seen that happen? Doesn't happen. Doesn't. There's actually some really cool maps I was looking at that show they basically take like the number of events each candidate does in a state during the general election and then resizes the states on the map so that places that are visited more are bigger. And you look at that map and you're like, oh, there's like... 15 states on this map the rest of them don't even get a visit during the general election yeah do you think state do you think swing states feel like oh this is what happens to every state in an election as no they don't come to alabama you guys they don't come to what's a reliably blue state they don't come to california so then the the what is it the whole northern half of california feels completely ostracized because they have to go along with san francisco and la Anyway, uh, what's the last one? Um, It lessens the likelihood of calls for recounts or demands for runoff elections. This is the one. This is the well, this is the one valid point I have is that for some reason, the pro electoral college argument thinks that if you do away with the amendment, there is no clarification of electoral process in these states. Like um, the state is sort of taken out of the organization and and understanding of the vote which i find to be poor logic it's sort of like in the pro electoral college mindscape it starts with the voters at the base of the pyramid and then they vote for their representatives and then they pick their electors and then the electors pick the president to the top of the pyramid so you sort of have this nice flow of power from the people up through the government right it's a nice structure it it allows for oversight it allows for clarity Mm. in a perfect in a perfect world um so if you do away with a a large organizational aspect of that and you just say the states don't really have a say in how this is run or who these people are voting for or anything like that it takes away this sort of i guess in the, the way it's manifesting right now is like wisconsin has a law where if the count is within a 1% margin, there's an automatic recount. And the pro-electoral college argument is that if you just do away with electors and all of that stuff, you do away with that sort of law that helps organize Wisconsin's contribution to the national vote. Which I find to be incredibly poor logic. Because <laughs> like then you just put in other structures. And like you don't do away with the Secretary of State of each state. No, you just figure out a different way to run an election. We've done that before. It's, you know, a non-trivial thing to do, but it's not a reason not to do it. Yeah, it's just you have to organize it in a different way. But you can keep all... I don't know why you can't keep all of those same structures. I mean, I guess, like, the argument I could see 
being made, which again, like I don't necessarily think this is inherently a bad argument, but if you're doing a national popular vote and voting is different in each state, that's a violation of the equal protection clause. Like, Yes, I read that too. Can you say more about that? Because I didn't quite understand. Yeah, so I guess the idea is because at the moment you're not actually voting for the president when you vote for the president, but rather you are voting for your state's electors for them to cast the vote. It's okay that rules are different in Pennsylvania and Wyoming and Alabama about how voters register and about how votes are cast and about the process for counting them because it only matters really within the state. Yeah. I think we're saying like two halves of the same argument. Yes, I agree. Yes. Um, And like, I see that I might be of the mind that it actually like you shouldn't have less or more access to the ballot depending on where you live. That seems, I don't know, ethically compromised to me in a country where we're supposed to care about the will of the people that some people's will is more easily expressed than others. But I can see from like a particular perspective how the federal government setting like one unified policy for elections does chip away at like states' abilities to control their own electoral process. All right. So should we go to clown? I, yeah, I think before we do, I want to, I'd love to address two of the points from the pro arguments that you laid out. Okay. I think the other ones I saw that were sort of flimsily argued as well is just like, um, the status of the Congress as representatives of the state, as well as the legislatures of those states, uh, are diminished by getting rid of the Electoral College. Direct election leads to populism and a populist rise, which I said, what the f- <laughs> A little late for that one? I mean, we could get into, like, adding states to, like, screw with the Electoral College as well, but anyway, you go first. I've talked a lot. I think the thing that I found most interesting, and because this was news to me, is that the <laughs> the framers of the Constitution weren't super jazzed about the Electoral College. They weren't like, oh my god, this is brilliant. We're so excited we figured this out. But it was like kind of the last thing they figured out, and they just like tossed it off onto this committee called the Grand Committee on Postponed Questions. Oh, which wow. Is really? A name. <laughs> Like that is a great committee name. But yeah, it was part it was one of these things where like they hadn't been able to figure it out and people wanted to go home, so they just tossed it to this group and were like, Can you guys figure this out for us? And they left us with the Electoral College, which does not inspire a whole lot of confidence at all. Mm-hmm. No, it does not. But the other thing that I sort of recently learned is that it is sort of like very closely tied to slavery in a in a way I hadn't really thought Ooh, about. Yeah, they really don't want you to bring that up, but keep going. <laughs> they meeting pro-electoral college people. Or like once you think about it, you're like, oh, of course, it makes sense that like southern slave states would want this system because in a national popular vote, they're not going to let enslaved people vote. So they would have less representation in that sense. Whereas if they're allowed to use their population counts that are taking account of enslaved people, even if they aren't voting, they will get more representation because it's about like their congressional and their senatorial counts as opposed to the actual number of voters they have in any state. That's gross to think about, isn't it? Isn't it? And like you think about that and you're like, hmm, if that was the reason we had it, it doesn't seem like a real great thing to keep around. I think I don't know. Well, no, it was probably thought about because like slavery is such at the forefront of most of the founding laws. 
of the documents that we uphold to this very day. Yeah, to want the population numbers but not want the actual representation of mm-hmm. them is is very clear that it had some weight at the time and was probably a really good negotiation tactic for the North in those moments where, or I guess for the South, I, I should say, oh, I misspoke, where if you're, I hate to do this, but we're going to do it as a thought exercise. Pardon my dog. Um, if you're a Southerner, not even a slave owner, but if you're a Southerner, how do you not get, well, you should see that black people are people and they should be allowed to vote, but we're not in that time, unfortunately. But according to them in that moment, how are they not going to be overrun by Northern tendencies? I mean, it's this whole thing of like, can one state tell another state what to do? Um, but I guess that's the great purpose of Congress, right? It's to bring together those opinions and... Yeah, and I think the the point that I saw made a couple of times is that the Electoral College isn't really a tool to like protect federalism. Like the fact that states are the mechanism by which senators and congressional representatives are decided is the thing that protects those states and the federal government, right? That they have two senators and some Congress people and that the electoral college really doesn't do that sort of like states rights work that some people might think it does. Right. And can't one argue that by the winner takes all mantra of the electoral college, a lot of voices are muted in those states that have differing opinions and aren't represented by the majority. So like the flip argument of like it it prohibits or it allows for smaller opinioned people to get into representation. I mean, I guess the thing is, like, Wyoming isn't discounted because it has three electors. So then you have to take Wyoming seriously, for lack of a better word. But then the flip side of that is, like, anybody blue in Wyoming, for lack... I hate the whole blue-red thing, but anybody blue in Wyoming is discounted because their whole state goes red all the time. So the very thing it tries to prop up it also negates some of its population and those voters are not heard yes on this particular election which i think also goes to the fact of like the executive branch in general has too much power and too much sway over the entire system the whole thing like the fact we care this much is putting too much focus on one branch of government we should care about all three branches equally yes and i'm sure we will talk more about that when we talk about the courts in a little bit. Uh, but yeah, I, I came across a couple of other reasons why the Electoral College isn't great. And that's definitely one of them. The idea that you similar to gerrymandering, if you're a Republican in California or like a Democrat in Kentucky, regardless of how you vote, your vote isn't ever going to matter in a presidential election because your state is going to go the way it always goes. And so that's one thing. There's the whole slave issue, which is, I think reason in itself to reconsider it's one of those maybe institutional racism factors that maybe we should Mm -hmm. address yeah and the other one being because it's a state-based system it disenfranchises americans who live in territories that are not states hey there you go puerto rico guam american samoa all american citizens don't Mm -hmm. get a vote in the presidential election because they don't live somewhere with electoral college votes and up until 1960s neither did dc and DC has right. gotten those votes, but very controversial. But still not a state, mm-hmm. and so that's another thing where like it is disenfranchising people who happen to be primarily people of color. Are we surprised? 
And then of course there's also there's also that sort of like tried and true complaint, which is that it gives small states undue influence and sort of goes against the idea that one person one vote. Because in Wyoming, each elector you only have about Yeah, they love Wyoming what, as the beta test, don't they? Yeah, I think it's something like hundred and ninety five thousand people per elector in Wyoming. Whereas it's seven hundred and twelve thousand per electric. Which means I mean the the math I saw was basically like according to the stats at that time was like every voter in Wyoming has three point six times the effect on an elector than a person in California mm-hmm. does. Yeah. So in that ratio of like you have three point six m- more vote. I mean you're basically yeah you're three voters instead of one. It just deep it it makes the value of the vote very odd. And the crappy argument I want to make is like there's more people in cities. Yeah. Shouldn't they be equal? I just shouldn't they be equal? And then the way you level it out is that you have equal representation in the Senate. Yes. And well you know I might have increasingly been of the mind that like even that's a problem. I definitely think given that the Senate has so much power and is very much like every state gets the same say that in the way we elect our president who is supposed to represent everyone that it really should be the thing where like every person in the country gets the same say in who the president is. Yeah. Which I think that goes back to like the OG setup of the executive branch was that it wasn't necessarily part of that. The, I mean, like, I feel like I didn't do enough research on this aspect of it, but the executive branch wasn't necessarily meant to be that accessible to the people of like being the people's voice or that kind of thing it has i think turned into that more than it was maybe originally intended and i actually kind of think that that narrative is a narrative we've been told and doesn't necessarily align with some of how the founders thought about it because i think in a you know some of the stuff i was reading particularly sort of after the constitution is ratified both in the federalist papers but just in sort of other documents a lot of the founding fathers were like very explicit that the president was meant to be the representative of the people as a whole, as opposed to how Congress was very much like rooted in the states. And it was just at that time, like, because communication technologies weren't great, it was sort of unreasonable, at least in their mind to expect that like, someone in rural New York, and someone in rural North Carolina would be able to have like an informed opinion about who is the single best person in the country to do this job. And that's why they like electors mediate that process. But they didn't think that the people should be separate from that choice. They very much thought that the president should be responsive to the will of the people. It was just that they couldn't think technologically about how to fix that problem. And we've technologically fixed that problem. We might have overfixed that problem. So instead, I think that argument sort of is might be relying on like a faulty reading of some of that history. Could one say like, I mean, executive branch, executive branch, original intent, it would have been based off of the British Prime Minister. I think, though, it's like both the British Prime Minister and the King, in a way, too, sort of bridging the gap. Between yeah, those a combo two of those. Yeah, and the whole fear of the time is that we do not want to go to a monarchy. Mm-hmm. Well, some people did, but it was warped at the time. There was no real example of this version. So over time, I think it's gone from Prime Minister <laughs> to King, <laughs> where like that has been the sort of slow eek of it but the other main i mean i think it's to serve as like the diplomat to other countries it's meant to serve as the symbol of the country in those kind of negotiation moments or and it's it's very much the head of the the military power Mm -hmm. of the country 
it is the great general. That's why it's a general to begin with, with Washington. It's, it's meant to serve as that diplomatic need and also that forceful need um, as they arise. It, it definitely feels like the power of the people is taken away at every other opportunity. It would be nice to have one branch of government where like it is solidly. I mean, I guess that's what Congress is supposed to be. That's supposed to be the people's representative and the other two aren't necess- were not meant to be as direct. Right, because both the Senate and the president at least as originally conceived of, have like a mediating Correct. level between people voting and actually getting to decide the president. Correct. And the the representatives were, yeah, even less of one whole branch. The whole legislative was like, you're, you were in charge of your state legislators and then your House of Representatives. And that's where your vote as a citizen mm-hmm. was directed. And then by electing the people that you agree with, they are then supposed to take your interest and apply it to those other places that they have power to then both control power so you don't have um, flippant emotional choices in elections, but also to check and balance and all of that kind of thing. Yeah, and we've seen pretty comfortable moving away from that in the Senate, at least in part. <laughs> so I find it rather interesting that the the argument is still, well, that's, that would be inappropriate to do for the president when... Like a hundred years ago, we were really cool with being like, no, you should actually just get to vote for your senator. Well, let's also talk about time and place. So at the time, didn't it make sense that you would give somebody the job of going to do all the voting and the lawmaking because you had to go grow your own potatoes and like couldn't get away. And and so you elect a representative to represent you in, in order to maintain your life. So if we all had to participate in our democracy as full heartedly as um, we would like to, if all of a sudden... It doesn't make sense to an an 18th century person Mm -hmm. who is limited by technology, limited by transport, limited by education, limited by race and gender. Uh, A representative government has different benefits then in terms of electors. For sure. It makes sense at the time is what I'm trying to say. And I think we can recognize that we now live in a different time and that it's okay that it makes less (laughs) sense as so many things from that time do. I also, yeah, let's also talk about the fact that like, there are still clearly ignorant people and misinformed and and um, miseducated, uneducated about uh, policy and elections and who and what they're voting for. But at the same time, a lot of those struggles, we no longer have to apply. Like people can take the time to vote early. Like we allow for that. We allow for more information to pass to voters than ever before. So I think it's healthy to keep, to be skeptical about voter and voter awareness and like how easily people can be swayed with social media. I think we're still struggling with. The inherent distrust in our common man is something I find a little sad about our country. I would agree. But at the same time, you've seen Facebook. It's pretty, it's pretty messy out there and people think the earth is flat. So yeah, no, like intellectually, I want to like, trust everyone to do the right thing. There's a valid argument for like the sway of the people can be very uh, scary and tempestuous and easily swayed in some ways. So maybe they weren't totally in the wrong for putting in those kinds of stopping points. Yeah, I mean, I think my argument for that would be we should in some ways perhaps let people get what they want. Like if they if they really desperately want like no taxes and no public services then as like horrifically disastrous as that might be, let them get that for two years, see how awful it is, and then give another party a chance to like get into power. Where I think I'm frustrated is that like, neither party ever really gets the chance to actually enact their policy. So people continue being like mad or angry or like really forcefully pushing for this thing that isn't ever going to happen. 
but it never happening, no one ever gets to see that it doesn't work. And then you still push for it, even though maybe if you were given the chance to do whatever you wanted for a couple of years, like a parliamentary government would, when it went really bad, people would be like, oh, yeah, no, we're not going to do that again. Yeah. So how do we fix it, Katie? How do we fix all of this? Well, the the middle of the road option, I think, sounds more palatable, because I think amending the Constitution in the 21st century is, well, at least in the next administration, is slim to unlikely. I think um, for some reason we've deified the Constitution so that it can never be changed for some reason, even though it's inherent within its structure that you can amend it. So I think the middle ground approach would be no more winner-take-all electors. Okay. Break up, keep the electors, but do it like Nebraska or Maine, where they have to go with the district they represent. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know what the outcome of that is, but I think that would be more beneficial to some of these states we're talking about, like California, because they do have Republican candidates or representatives. They do have different legislators go to Congress. I don't know if that devalues then the Wyoming folk, or it more balances it out. But I think that could be a nice try to at least see if that makes an impact in some way that we don't foresee. Yeah, I mean, right, because it would be it would basically give us a result that's a little bit closer to what the House of Representatives looks like. Yeah. And I don't know if 270 would cut it anymore in that kind of scheme, or if you would need a different kind of rationale for what the majority is, or would it be the same? I don't know. I think you I think in that way, you could probably keep it pretty similar to how we do it now. You still need 270, but you can get that from a like a much wider range of combinations. I mean that could I wonder what the falling out of that would be. Would it be they would go to certain districts a lot? I mean they do that anyway. I mean I mean right I think that's the thing. I think it would just focus rather than having a swing state, you would really get down to like those swing congressional districts. You'd go to like, you know, like in this but that's what it is anyway. So like mm-hmm. is that systematic change enough? I don't know. Uh I do believe that one man, one vote is important. And if more people want this person uh, by a significant amount, even by one vote, I mean, like majority rule, right? Yeah. And I think it's interesting because I, in a way, like that idea. Like if we have to hold on to the electoral college, I like that idea a little bit better than the national popular vote compact, which is this other thing floating out there in the world right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That the 15 states have signed, yeah? I think we're up to 16 now. Oh, is it? Probably gonna get some more after this year. Yeah, it's currently 74 votes shy of going into effect. And can you explain what that is for those of us that don't know? It's uh, basically the idea is a group of states agrees that they will award their electoral college votes to whoever wins the national popular vote because states are allowed to award their votes however they want. That's totally legal. And the idea is it goes into effect once enough states with enough votes to decide the election sign on. So basically, the idea would be if they can get 270 plus one vote in the Electoral College, then they would all agree to do this. And then they would get to decide the election based on a national popular vote. That's pretty dramatic. So how many states need to agree to it for it to be impactful? I think it really is just about the 270 votes. So if they could get any combination of 74 electoral votes, so like Ohio, Florida, Pennsylvania, sign on or some combination like that. Have any have any swing vote have any swing states agreed? No swing states. At the moment it's all the West Coast states 
Hawaii, New Mexico, Colorado, Illinois, and then most of the states in the Northeast, except for Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, and Maine. Okay. And it looks like it's pending in Ohio, Virginia, South Carolina, and Pennsylvania. Yeah, that would that would do it. Or like if wow. like Texas, Florida, and one other. Um, yeah, so it's definitely it's it's an interesting thought. And like I'm not I'm not actually like that opposed to it. I think it's a like it's a nice way of getting to a national popular vote without having to get rid of the electoral college. Um, do I want to get rid of the electoral college? Yes, that's where I stand personally. But I think you're right that we don't get that kind of constitutional amendment passed in our current political state. Do you know what's fascinating to me is that elections which won the where um, the popular vote was lost, but they won the election. Three elections happened in the 19th century and three elections have happened in the 21st century. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. One could say it's a little scary that it's happened three times in 20 years. I think that's indicative of something. The other three were spread out over 40 years and then uh, 12 years. But yeah, I don't know, man. It's just... And I mean, what's the margin? What's the different? What's the percentage difference this year? Uh, it's getting up there, I think. I want to say it's like close to maybe like four or 5%. Yeah, I think it's just, it's almost 4%, which is anyone who's counting like 5 million votes. 4% would be the highest ever. So, well, no, Adams and Jackson, first time this ever happened was John Quincy Adams lost the popular vote to Andrew Jackson and did go on to win the presidential election. The difference there was 10% of the vote. 40,000 votes. Rutherford B. Hayes and Tilden was 3% in 1876. Then you had Harrison and Cleveland was 0.8%. 2000, Bush and Gore was only uh, 0.5% or 500,000 votes. And then the most significant amount clearly was um, Clinton and Trump. Hillary Clinton receiving nearly 3 million more votes than Donald Trump did in 2016. Voter turnout at that time was about 60%. Have we covered it all? It is. Yeah, it is. I would be super interested to read a bit more about what what has shifted in the last 20 or 30 years to make this happen more often. Is it a population reshuffling? Is it a change in partisanship? Is it some other thing we haven't really thought about? But the fact that it is such a more frequent occurrence. I genuinely think it's I think it's three things. I think it's a change in partisanship and the the stronghold um, new republicanism and, well, not dem- Democrats yet. They haven't quite bro- broken in the same way. We're getting there with the Bernie folks kind of shattering. But within the Bush years into the into the Obama years, you had the rise of the Tea Party and sort of schism within republicanism that then led to Trump. And then with, I think it's that, I think it's cable news TV. I think it's uh, clear differences in our media coverage of news. So then partisanship is even more starkly divided. And then what's the third thing you said? Partisanship or like how people are moving or living demographics. Oh, and demographic changes. I think it's also significantly that. Like the population in 2000 is not the population in 2020 and the way it's made up and how people are voting. You also have a more informed voter than you've ever had before. One would hope. Good or good or bad. You do. I mean, like so many people knew how to vote early this year than ever did before. That's very true. I will read this little factoid that I just saw. State winner-take-all laws tend to decrease voter turnout in states without close races. Voters living outside the swing states have a greater certainty of which candidate is likely to win their state. 
The knowledge of the probable outcome decreases their incentive to vote. Not surprised. Don't we want people to vote? Some of us want people to vote. The answer is no. The answer is no. We've never wanted people to vote. Clearly, we were only allowed to vote for representatives in the original document. Is that enough from the Electoral College? I think so. Let's get rid of it. We want to take a quick break. And when we come back, we can talk about everyone else's favorite anti-democratic institution, the Supreme Court. (laughs) Yes, but I like the Supreme Court. I'm going to try and I'm going to try and convince you. Okay. I look forward to that. Okay, great. Okay, let's talk about that third branch, baby. Supreme Court. Let's talk about it. And I feel like the third branch, the judiciary, does get like a bit of a bad rap in the sense that everyone is always talking about the Supreme Court and we almost never really have a conversation about the district court or the appellate courts. And I want to say to all the people who care deeply about the courts, I'm sorry. And also, I think this is just going to be a conversation about the Supreme Court. Listen, it's it's all impactful. Mitch McConnell clearly has a... A stake in all of the courts these days. So anything that he can appoint judges to. Yep. That man loves his judges and hates helping people. I didn't look into it all. Electing judges versus appointing judges. Do you know much about that at all? Because there are some judges you elect, right? Yeah. In Pennsylvania, the state Supreme Court are elected judges. I really don't know how I feel about that. Because on one end, the like thought of judges running for election doesn't sit well with me. And I can't quite articulate why that is. But I guess it's something about the partisanship. Well, impartiality and, and objectivism. If you are subject to the will of the people, how can you have an impartial view of the law and against a certain person? So, I mean, can you imagine elected judges in... Let's talk about it. So in... um. I'm looking at state judicial elections in 2020. Uh, Lots of states hold uh, elections not only for their Supreme Court, but intermediate court as well. Oh, my God. Two seats in, uh, man, most of them. And I can, in a way, I can see why. Because I I think this idea that courts should be interpreting the law and particularly like constitutional law separate and removed from the will of the people, while in one sense is, yes, we don't want people like using the courts to be vindictive against others. On the other hand, the idea is that the power to govern comes from the people. And it works like that in the legislative branch and the executive branch. So in a way, it does kind of make sense that at least in some context, the people also have a say in how the judicial branch interprets law and makes constitutional decisions. Do you know who the Alabama Supreme Court justice was a couple times? I could take a guess and it's not going to make me really happy, is it? Go ahead and guess. One Roy Moore? Yeah, twice. So much so that they put an amendment out to try and limit him from running another time. Woof. Because even they agree that he's bananas. Yeah, he's a nightmare. So third branch government, judiciary branch... SCOTUS, as it likes to be called, which sounds too much like scrotum to me, so I don't think we should say that. <laughs> I'd never thought about that before. I'm never going to unhear that. Thank you. Let's do the basics. As of 2020, judges can be nominated by the executive branch holder, the president, to then be um, approved through the Senate uh, by a majority. And that majority just has to be one vote. 51 people in the Senate have to say, yep, they're great. And then they get a life appointment 
to the third branch of our democracy. Supreme Court decides on on court cases brought to them. Um, They can choose whether they wish to hear the case or not, or they can throw it back down to the lower court and whatever the lower court decided stands. And that has been the case with several things. Right. And and I think I read somewhere they take like 80 out of like 8,000 cases a year or something like that. Yeah, that's why you hear like, oh, it's making its way to the Supreme Court. They don't necessarily have to hear it once it gets there. Um, Things I like best about the court. Um, You can see the progress of the nation within the court, like all branches of government, but I do find it fascinating. Um, It is one of the most secluded in that they do not run for public office. There has been a precedent of they do not speak out uh, from the chamber. They speak out with their, their, um, what's it called? Dissent, dissent, uh, and they publish those. But one thing that I super appreciate is you're not allowed to film the Supreme Court deliberating or within chambers. Nope. You only see like the drawings allowed by court illustrators, um, which allows for them to remain impartial because they don't have to preen for cameras. Yeah, what else? I mean, they all sit up there in their nine chairs and they listen to both arguments and they're allowed to ask questions of the council and not in the constitution, but as like a long-standing practice that they then get to decide whether or not laws are constitutional or not. Basically, all of the correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure it's not everyone, but most of the wording of the constitution is that Congress shall make no law Yada, 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 yada. Congress shall make no law, yada, 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 yada. And the amendments over time have been like, Congress shall make no law stating that uh, people cannot vote on the basis of gender. Or Congress shall make no law based on race. Uh, prohibiting votes or from, you know, those based on race, right? Yeah, I think in a way, there's actually this really interesting shift that happens pre-Civil War, post-Civil War. And pre-Civil War... The big concern is exactly that. It's like limiting federal power. Everyone is worried about the power of the federal government as it relates to states. And then after the Civil War, particularly with those like Reconstruction Amendments, 13, 14, 15, it switches and it's more about the federal government protecting individual rights against encroachment by the states. And so then you sort of see a lot of this, you know, Congress shall have the power to enforce this by appropriate legislation in a lot of those amendments, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. sort of deliberately giving power to Congress as opposed to a lot of the earlier bits of the Constitution, which are taking away or restricting federal power. So a good example is 15th Amendment, 1870, stating that, where it says, um, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Section 2 says, the Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Okay, so we're going to pick a 18th century amendment now hold on yeah i'm not really there i mean there's not a whole lot right there you have the bill of rights i can't remember what 11 is we talked about 12 because it's the thing that fixes the electoral college so there's not all that many really the 11th amendment here we go the judicial power of the united states shall not be construed to extend to any suit or law in law or equity commenced or prosecuted against one of the united states by citizens of another state or by citizens or subjects of any foreign state. So basically, me as a Pennsylvania resident can't sue the state of Ohio. Restricts the ability of individuals to sue against states in federal court, correct? Interesting. 
And I feel like that's a thing that's like become more of an issue recently, or at the very least there's a podcast episode I was listening to about that one. But anyway, all of which is to say, like, I think you're the biggest point within like the constitutionalness of it is like the courts are the thing that the least the constitution says the least about like, the constitution is not a particularly detailed document as documents setting up government goes. But when it comes to the courts, it's very vague. And that's why we have Supreme Court that has different numbers of justices on it that sometimes, you know, does different things or is structured in different ways. Yeah, let's talk about that really quick. Let me do the let me do the hit points of it. Yeah, hit me. It's my understanding that the original Supreme Court, well, first and foremost, um, first Chief Justice was John Jay, who wrote all the Federalist Papers with Hamilton. Fun fact. But after that, um, it went from six justices to five because uh, Adams wanted to limit the ability for Jefferson to appoint a justice. Jefferson got into power. He immediately brought it back up to six so he could appoint whoever he wanted. Then it, it's another kind of big moment of change in the Civil War time. So Lincoln didn't like the Dred Scott verdict, which can you remind everyone what Dred Scott was about? It basically ruled that uh, black people are not citizens and have no rights in a court of law in the United States. Yeah, yeah. And he had to be taken back, right? Yeah, that he was not allowed to sue for his freedom because he was not a person. Right. Um. So Lincoln was properly angry about that. So he wanted to go up in justices in 1863, but then he died. Johnson got in there. Congress hated Johnson. So they wanted to take away justices from him from being able to appoint any. So they went down to seven. Petty. I appreciate it. <laughs> Which like, what an F you to the president. So petty. This is within administrations. You know, they're changing them like that. Then Grant gets elected and they go, okay, you can have nine again. So you get to appoint whoever you want. Which if you're a Democrat at that time, you want to be pulling your hair out because it's like, I guess we just put whoever we want on whenever we want them. Like such corruption and and power grabbing if you're a Democrat at that time on their behalf of the Republicans. Then we get to our biggest uh, game changer, which is Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt wanted to, as we would now come to know it, pack the court. So he wanted 15 justices, and he also wanted them to have a mandatory resignation after the age of 70. It was shot down by Congress by a 70 to 20 vote, so not even entertained. But it should be also noted that FDR is the only president to serve more than two terms, and in his 12 years in office, he was actually able to appoint eight justices to the Supreme Court in his time. So basically packed the court in its own right. Yes. Which is interesting. Yeah, I don't think I I don't think I knew that. And that definitely puts that whole question in a slightly different light. And I think the other interesting thing in sort of thinking about transition points for the court is that Roosevelt is sort of this point where the court in a way steps back a little bit from being this like really activist trying to like very much interfere with what Congress and the president are doing. And sort of steps back and is like, we won't basically like we won't be aggressive dicks about stuff. We will very much like restrain ourselves. And that that even though we think about like the the 60s and like the Warren Court as being a very activist court. In fact, they're actually like much more restrained than courts were sort of prior to FDR. Yeah. For as many uh, positive cases that can be cited that the Supreme Court upheld, there are just as many negative cases. Mm-hmm. One I think of in particular is in the eugenics era when they said a woman had, uh, basically it was this story of um, this woman was raised in a foster home and kind of just treated as a a glorified slave, a total Cinderella moment where like they just made her work for free and didn't truly love her, but adopted her so that they could keep 
uh, abusing her in this way. And one of the forms of abuse is that they gave her a hysterectomy against her will. And uh, this, the reasoning was that she didn't, uh, she she shouldn't have had kids and they were in her, it was in her best interest because she was so simple and all of this kind of derogatory statements about her mental health that were proven to be inaccurate and aggrandized. But the Supreme Court sided with the people that did that to her and cited eugenic reasons for doing it. Um, that's one that sticks in my mind, along with all the ones from the pre-Civil War that sort of fl- fanned the flames at the time of both sides of that argument. The ones that really jump out to me, um, aside from uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, separate but equal, um, are the, the insular cases. So the ones that sort of settle on what status the people who live in American territories have, which are just when you read them, are like horrifically racist and basically say, like, because they're of the type of people who live in these places, they can never really be Americans. So they shouldn't have sort of full citizenship rights because of that. I mean, it's still made up of people, right? As much as we want to glorify it, it as an institution, it's still flawed human beings with immense intellectual power making really flawed arguments. Yes. And that when it comes and like there are moments where you want them to be this sort of beacon of progressivism and like they're defending the rights of a downtrodden minority and more often than not, they are not doing that or they don't quite live up to what those aspirations might be. So what do we do about it? Oh, I don't know. I think we could, we could, or do we agree that it's a problem? Because I'm definitely coming from the perspective that like, I think it's a problem, but I don't want to impose that on you. Oh, well, as a woman looking at the Supreme Court, I think it's just perfect the way it is for sure. No problems whatsoever. In the fact that it's only ever had two black people on it and only four or five women. Wait, how many? Sandra, Ruth, Elena, Sonia, Amy. Yeah, five women. I think that's enough for sure. We'll just keep it as is. So, dude, I don't know. I think there's something to be said of like, it needs some kind of look at it because it's been weaponized in a way that I don't find very appealing. But then again, it's always been weaponized. So what do we do? What are our options? How about that? Okay, I will throw a couple of options your way. Let me know what you think about them. Okay, I'm ready. Option number one is to pack the court and to just add like a couple more liberal justices to get back to something closer to like maybe like a 7-6 balance or something in that world. Option two, uh, end lifetime appointments. So rather than justices serving for life, each serves say 18 years and rotates in such a way that each president gets to appoint, you know, two justices during their term. Option three is Congress has the power to decide what cases the court can see. They basically get to set its jurisdiction. And so they could, for example, take certain cases out of their purview, like things around civil rights or voting rights or LGBT rights. Um, Or they could even go so far as to end the court's power of judicial review, basically saying the court isn't allowed to rule that an entire law is unconstitutional. Um, Or they could do some version of that where they say, if you are going to overrule a law, or if you are going to do a particular kind of case that you need a seven to two or a six to three majority, not just a five to four. Um, So those are sort of things out in the world. And then there's my personal favorite, which comes from a Time article, which we could talk about in a bit more detail, but I'm curious, like, do any of those first thoughts jump out to you as being... The most appealing version of that was the second one. Mm-hmm. So, and lifetime appointments? I 
I think there's a case for that because I think it de-weaponizes the presidential potential to pack it anyway. Mm-hmm. In the fact that like FDR, eight justices, that seems insane. He also had like four terms, which isn't like we cap that too, which I think is smart. But I'm a big fan of uh yeah time limits on all branches of government, executive, legislative, and judicial. So it seems fair enough to like appoint that for all parties. Now, yeah, and I think I think the nice thing that you did with that statement was, like, it's not about age, it's about length of time. Mm-hmm. So you can put somebody in there that's with it and ready to go at 70, and then they get out at 88, and I think that's fine, because you still have the benefit of expertise, and, you know, I don't need them to run a marathon, I just need them to be really good judges. And there's something to be said about, like, an, an older judge has the experience. Mm-hmm. Equal to, you know, you don't want to only have older young judges, right? You want you want it to be, well, I don't know if you necessarily want the judicial grace to be reflected in people, but in a way you do, right? I w- at least in like some, some aspects, I would say definitely. Yeah. Uh, so that's the one that just, it strikes me as fair in other branches, so why not apply it to this branch? A term limit, if you will. Yeah, I'm happy to get into a... A conversation with you about term limits because I have feelings about them. But I think in this particular case, it, this makes a lot of sense to me too. And interestingly, there's sort of a constitutional question, right? Because in the Constitution, it says that federal judges serve for life or good behavior. So either they decide to retire or they get impeached. Um, but there's nothing to say that you have to keep the same job you have the whole time. So there's a world in which after you retire, say you're in your mid-60s, you're still going that you could, rather than being fired at the end of those 18 years, just go back and be on a district or an appeals court. And so you're still working, yeah, like, your expertise is still in the system. And also it means you have to deal with the percussions of all the decisions you've just made on the Supreme Court. So you actually have to, you know, you're part of figuring out how those get implemented on lower court levels, which is an idea I like, I really like that thought that the justices are going sort of back into the more regular court system after their time on the Supreme Court. Also, like, lifetime appointments made in a time when a lot of people died a lot younger just don't strike me as being as valid as they once were. Yes. And I do, I get the idea of wanting them to be insulated from political pressure, but I think having a guaranteed job for 18 years does a pretty good job of insulating you in a way that... Well, they're not, or even, like, rounded up to 20. Like, who cares? Like, solid 20-year appointment. And then, um, I think the flip side of that is, like, you still have the caveat of, like, there's always a rotation. So do you just, I think the problem with that is, like, do you just wait out? Okay, say you have a justice that's due for retirement. Um, as a Congress and a president, do you just wait out that retirement and keep all of your, I don't know, does it make the flow of legislation happen differently in a detrimental way? That we're not foreseeing. I think, yeah, there's always that possibility, but at least in, in the way legislation currently happens, I don't necessarily think if people would, would not do things any more or any less because of the court rotating more frequently. I think at the moment, right, like, in a way, we kind of have to write laws that that speak to the nine people on the court, because odds are it'll go up in front of them. And, you know, you want Justice Roberts to look favorably on it. So you write it in a particular way. And there's an argument to be made that like, having to craft your law so that nine people like it 
isn't a great way to make law. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know where I land on that necessarily. I don't know. It's just in the evidence of the court in my lifetime, it has always been one of, I don't know, they like to say it was a liberal court, but it was always struck me as like extremely conservative in terms of the fact that they were like, we're not going to make this choice flippantly and without thinking about precedent and extreme gravity. I don't know. It just seemed like in all of their, they're the, they're, I would say they're the one branch, regardless of if I agree with them or not, they always have the weight of their position is very much felt. And I think that's a testament to like the justices that have held those positions. Maybe that's just my perception, but they have always struck me as very much like we are devoid of the emotions of this because we understand the stakes at which we are being put to the test. I don't know. They just, they're a different breed, you know, they're not like the people we vote for. So in a way, not voting for them is beneficial because they can be objective. I, I know we're saying the same thing over and over again, but I think you see that manifest in how they are not public personalities. We don't know what they sound like. We don't know their likes and dislikes in the same way. We know rest of the elected body. I mean, I would push back on that just a little bit. Um, I don't necessarily disagree, but that that question of we don't know that much about them, one might like there's a world in which that's super worrying, right? Like these people are some of the most powerful individuals in our system of government, and we don't really know what they think or believe and uh, and often can't figure that out, right? Because a confirmation hearing, they're not, they're going to go out of their way not to like, say exactly how they would rule on a hypothetical future case. And so you, you basically put them up there and you're like, well... I hope they're not the worst in some way we didn't anticipate. Yeah. And that that could be worrisome in some ways. Fair. Counter argument. What I find interesting about the way we're talking about this is that it all ends at the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And I think if you were a justice, you would say it doesn't end with us. We just kick it back to the party at fault. So if if we are brought a case and we see it as non or unconstitutional, then it's up to the legislature to amend that law, change that law, and do their job, you know? Like, yeah. It's it's not so much that we are now decreeing that that is un-American, even though that's how people take it. It's that there is no basis in law for that to exist, and you are violating the Constitution. A Constitution that you said you would uphold and agree with. So you did not do that, Congress, so you now have to make a congressional choice of legislating appropriately as it fits the constitution so i don't see it as a stopping point even though people do like it is now the law of the land because the supreme court said it is and in a way that's true but it's not necessarily the end all be all right i think it, it assumes that congress is functional enough to fix something which given its oh, current state yeah, that's a whole, well we're talking about the court though we're not talking about congress Mike. no but that is that that is often the <laughs> tension right the reason the court is making a decision about gay marriage or about campaign finance or those big, big issues is in part, not always, but is in part because Congress and the executive are sort of kicking the can on those issues. They're punting to the courts because they yeah. are worried yeah. about making a choice that gets them unelected. And so they sort of similar to the executive, how Congress is like given some power up to the president. In a way, they're also giving some power up to the court because they're afraid to take responsibility for their actions. What's the quote about like democracy being the best worst option or something like that? Yeah, it's the worst option except for all the others. Yeah, and I think this is how it manifests where it's like you're so frustrated by the gridlock in Congress 
that the Supreme Court becomes more important. And the Supreme Court goes like, yeah, put your money where your mouth is, Congress. You need to write better laws. And then all of a sudden the can is then kicked back to them in a way. I mean, we're seeing it right now with this Affordable Care Act, which, I mean, I don't know what your interpretation of it is, but mine is looking at it and just being like, yeah, you don't have a case. And the Supreme Court, full of conservative judges, agree that you do not have a case. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is like... Write a better case, or write a better law, or when they pass the law, put better language in it so that you don't get to this point. Because you don't have a case. You need evidence. You need facts. You need an argument. You don't have one. Nope, which seems to be a fairly consistent problem for the Republican Party at this moment in time. And weirdly enough, Brett Kavanaugh and John Roberts are the ones going like, yeah, this isn't our ball. This isn't for us to decide. That is not the purpose of this court. Shocking. Yeah. But also valid. I mean, that's the thing that surprises people about the court, I think, sometimes. Is that when you see a, quote-unquote, conservative justice, you put them through the guise of, like, they will act as a Republican in Congress acts. And they don't. They act as a Republican judge would act, which is different. They have different, I don't know what the word is, makeup? They have different... I think they like, just, like, different uh, incentives. Like, they're, they might believe similar yeah. things, but they live in a system that has, like, different... Yeah different impulses and different rewards. There's a case of pro and con, like, let's take the big hot one that everyone likes to talk about. Let's talk about Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade passed, and the common conception at the time of, like, a conservative majority was that, even though it passed in with I mean, all men on the court, let's think about that for a minute, mm-hmm. was the fact that it was too much for the Supreme Court to say. It really shouldn't have been in there. They should have probably not listened to that case. It was too soon. It was too early. It was too decisive. It it caused, um, it was too radical at the time. And even RBG said, like, the Supreme Court shouldn't have taken that case. It was just not, not right. It was, it was too big of a football um, for them to decide, like, and, but because it is now precedent, taking it to the Supreme Court again, people think they'll just overturn it. But there is some weight to the fact that a Supreme Court has already declared that that was their outcome. What's the word? A verdict? No. What's the... Yeah, no, their, yeah, their decision, their opinion. Yeah. That holds weight in this modern court, whether you want it to or not. The fact that a Supreme Court said that that was constitutional has bearing in 2020 it doesn't like they just wipe it clean you know you have to make a case for why that court ruling was wrong and they shouldn't rely on precedent that's what i find fascinating about the court system yeah it is and i again being more ambivalent to it find that really interesting and also really frustrating because it also means having to deal with all of the bad precedent that we've been handed down from previous courts yeah in the same way yeah that that sort of struggle is still right like as a progressive i'm not gonna win every time it's like that's the most inherently conservative branch of government no matter what Mm -hmm. yeah truly because of just how the system is set up so like thinking you have thinking you have a radical liberal justice they're still not you know trotsky you know they're not full-blown by any stretch in any stretch they are it's a different makeup it's just a different viewpoint on law and the constitution and the understanding so i don't know when people just say amy coney barrett's a republican justice she's catholic she's gonna just i mean the chief justice is catholic and you see what he's done 
you know? It's like, you don't really know until they start hearing cases and how they vote. And, like, I think Clarence Thomas is conservative and was appointed and, and all of that stuff. Like, he has never, I think he is either never asked a question in a case or very... He asks, like, so few. There's an entire podcast episode about it. So few. It's it's maybe on one hand the amount of questions he's asked, which is fascinating to me. It yeah, truly, truly is. And I think that the interesting sort of specific thing with Amy Coney Barrett is that aside from sort of all of the like identity politics issues to be angry about it, it's just like, she's not a particularly good judge. Like you look at the the very limited number of rulings she's already made and you're like, you are like, your jurisprudence is bad. Like you think a, like a black employee being called the N word isn't a uh, like unsafe workplace that's just wrong not even that you're you know conservative or catholic or anything it's just like that's bad jurisprudence yeah um but before we wrap up with the court i want to make one more slightly different pitch to you yeah that we change the court we make it a lot bigger not like 11 judges or 13 justices but like 27 justices And turn it into something more like how the appeals court systems work, where rather than all nine justices sitting on every case, you instead have a randomly selected panel who is like three justices sit and hear a case. And if it's a big deal or they're disagreeing on something, then the whole court reviews it. But you don't have every justice necessarily sitting on every single case every time. And I really like this for a couple of reasons. One, no amendments needed, just pass a law. Two, it sort of fixes this problem of the court only hearing like 80 cases a year. If they're able to hear a lot more cases, the sort of politicking around, well, will the Supreme Court take it or not, which is in effect making policy, right? If the court decides not to take up a case, it is, in, it is making a choice even by not listening to it. Whereas if the court is able to hear a lot more cases, it lets us sort some things out, limits the indi- like the individual influence of one justice, right? Like if there's 27 of them, you have like one or two really liberal or really conservative justices, they don't have the power to tip the whole balance of the court. Um, and it means you're like much more likely to replace them more often, right? If there's 27 of them, odds are each president is going to be able to get to replace a certain number of them far more likely than if there's just nine. Um so I'm a big I'm a big fan of this, and in part because I think it's like more manageable. Because there's some conversations about whether term limits would need to be a constitutional amendment or not. And so this is like this feels to me, even though it's never going to happen, like as like a like an easier get that would bring a lot more positive change to the court in a lot of ways. I like I mean I like the idea of it. I think with all of these like pie in the sky ideas, it's just like the first administration to do it, how do you get how do you get past the gridlock of like, okay, we're gonna have twenty seven. So does Joe Biden get to appoint all of those extra judges? Or is it um Yeah, I think the Is it appointed by Biden but has to get like a seventy percent approval in the Senate rather than 51, you know, Mm -hmm. so they actually have to get the other side to agree on what the justices are. Yeah, I think the article I read basically made the case of doing it over time. So every two years, add two justices. So basically, every time there's a new Senate, give the, you know, give it another couple of people in. So that way, one president doesn't get to do everyone, but also like one Senate doesn't get control over the whole process. Um, So just having to like be patient and sort of wait for the court to fill up that way. Which I think like, right, like, especially like, because that would be, you know, over the course of a decade or so, 
not more. So like definitely, you know, no one party or one person gets to influence the whole process. So and still have a three, was it three justice court? Or would you have like a five or a nine? I think sort of whatever ends up working, the three is what the appeals courts do. And so that seems to be like one model to look to. But five would also I think work. I think like nine feels unwieldy in a lot of ways. So I would definitely I think want it smaller than that. Yeah, I think odd number always, though. For sure. Can you believe the court used to have an even number? Yes, six people. Can you imagine? How did they get anything done? They didn't, and I kind of think that was the point. I think that was in part. That was the point. They were like, ugh, we got to do odd numbers from now on. Somebody's got to be decisive. It's nonsense. Mm -hmm. You guys have to decide something. (laughs) It can't be three and three the whole time. Right? The irony of, like, Congress telling the courts to be more decisive, and now we've gotten sort of full circle. It's the other way around. Yeah. I mean, you make some good... What were your other options for changing the court? Term limits or a- aging out? Yeah, so a term limit... Upping lim- the number. And what was the other one? Um, the other one is ch- basically changing the types of cases the court is allowed to hear. So either stripping their jurisdiction over some things or making, like the requirement for a supermajority for particular types of cases, um, which I think is trickier because... That might be seen as too much meddling within their process. Yeah, and that's sort of the articles I was reading about. It seemed like that would be the pushback from the court and because they would get to decide whether it was constitutional or not. Yeah, it allows for them to remain impartial, right? Not persuaded. Yeah. Whereas like, if Congress decided what the Supreme Court had to listen to, there would be no progress made ever because it would be... Can you imagine Mitch McConnell got to decide every case they got to listen to for the past however many years he's been in power? Yeah, that would be pretty atrocious. Affordable Care Act, Affordable Care Act, Affordable Care Act, Affordable Care Act. It would just be a nightmare. Yes, 100%. I mean, I think the only other thing is, I think the only other thing is with the um, aged out, you know, end of tenure thing is you would still have these weaponized appointments here and there if somebody passed away unexpectedly. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't necessarily see you getting rid of that unless you also do the 27 and like a random selection will hear the case or whatever. Yeah. And that's why I really like the 27 because it, I think that the thing that people really like about the court and you've definitely mentioned is that they feel like they're, they're not political in the same way that Congress and the president are, or at least they're like, differently political they're a little bit removed yeah right i think recognizing that like people that's not that has nothing to do with people right like everyone's the same like you're not like a special different kind of person and like get some new genetic code when you're on the court but rather it's about how the institution is set up it's the structures that make that kind of decision making possible so i think if we can build an institution that really does make it not matter if there's like two or three really liberal or really conservative justices on the court but just by sheer size and random chance balances things out. And I think that leaves us in a place where like, sure, Trump gets to appoint three justices, but that's three out of 27. And the odds are they won't, you know, all hear the same case every time. So it doesn't matter quite as much. Lower stakes. Interesting thoughts. I think the main takeaway I want from this episode is the fact that these things have never been etched in stone, unchangeable. They changed. Whether it was good or bad, they changed again, and like we just kind of settled on nine justices, and we settled on the Electoral College, but there have been changes, and there's continuing looking at what is more representative of today, today's climate, and today's politics, and today's constituents, so... Anybody making the argument that it's not what the Founding Fathers intended. The Founding Fathers' overall intention with all of these things was that you guys get to change it because we're not going to be around this long. Yes. And the ignorance of that fact is the overarching 
point of all of these documents is completely just unfounded nonsense. It just blows my mind. Yeah, you put it really well earlier that it's in pencil, not in ink, and that it's meant to be reworked. I mean, it's literally in ink, and I get that, but they were like, this is paper. You can keep writing on paper. (laughs) Yes, metaphorically. Add some pages to the back. Yeah, and that in in it right at its heart, the Constitution is like an an inherently progressive document. It is meant to change. It is structured to change. It is structured to respond to the needs of people. It's it's a, yeah. And it's inherently like, the one thing that I think when people just crap on the founding fathers utterly and holistically, I find it just as detrimental as people that deify them without critiquing them. Both do the same thing, which is like, it's not complete trash what we made back then. Because even they were like, this is probably garbage on some level. You guys should change it. And here's how. And on the flip side of that, these are pretty good. Try not to change them radically. You know, we don't want mob rule, for lack of a better word, which to them meant really racist and sexist things. But, you know, they did put it in there that you could change it. And, like, the whole notion of what they were putting together was radical at the time. So even they were like, we don't know if we've got it right. This is all an idea. A great experiment. So keep improving upon it. A more perfect union is the goal. Mm-hmm. So you must try and get to that. And you must make choices that pursue that goal. Because it is not perfect now. It was not before we started. It will not be when we die. But you must move forward as if it can be. Yes. So. I think that's a that's a great thought to leave it on, I think. Trying. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. They weren't gods. They were dudes. And they got some things really right. And they got some things really wrong. And that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why they were like, we're also human. So, like, you all fix it. As you will be. Yeah, yeah right. That, I think that, that is, like, truly the most human impulse is that, yeah, we couldn't figure this out, but the people who come after us are bound to be smarter than we are, so they'll take care of it. Isn't that encouraging? I, I think so. I think it, I find it simultaneously really encouraging, and also I'm like, and we keep doing that, and sometimes there are things you really just shouldn't put off anymore, but climate change is for another yeah. podcast. We have both of us inside each person, I think. Yes, I think so. And I I would rather leave this on a more positive note that like, we can change, we have that power. It just will never be as fast as you want it to be. Yes. That's the great American reality. (laughs) Oh boy, yes. (laughs) But hey, it's changed before, so it can change again. And look, you know, won the popular vote and might win the Electoral College. What a new and exciting idea. Oh no, he's definitely going to win the Electoral College. I think we should be very clear on that. Joe Biden is going to win the Electoral College. Boy, are they trying now. Well, thank you, Katie, for doing this. This has been a really sort of thank fun you, experiment. I hope... Can we get back to uh, Missing History next week? Yes. What's the Hamilton line? Uh, can we get back to politics, please? The opposite can of that? Can we get back to politics, please? <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Awesome. We'll get back to people. Let's get back to people. Not institutions. Yeah, as much as I love institutions, it'll be nice to get back to, to some real people. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions of people you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you liked the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Jen, Catherine, and Marion for all their help on this project. Thank you for listening to Missing History. Thank you.